When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mondale is not simply a KGB agent in the ordinary sense, of course. Mondale is jointly owned by the left wing of the Socialist International and the grain cartel interests. If both these owners tell Mondale to lick the floor before a nationwide TV audience, I sincerely believe he would do just that. Watch Lyndon LaRouche, Independent Democrat for President, Tuesday, October 23rd. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. I hope I can get through this intro without messing up too much, because I refuse to write anything down. So, we're continuing our political cults theme with Marley Clements, who is a producer and writer and co-CEO of Bunker Crew Media. I first encountered her while doing research on the octopus story, and Lyndon LaRouche came up in that, which anybody who's reading that will be well aware of. And if you're not, make sure you hit the links in the show notes for those stories. Now, the Lyndon LaRouche political organization is very weird and kind of a joke, has been for years, although with the death of LaRouche and the passage of time in general, a lot of people have forgotten about the old guy. And now his wife carries on with this bizarro international political organization slash intelligence organization, about which we only touch the very surface, Marley and I, in this interview in addition to being a virtual part of the Reagan White House in the 80s, LaRouche got himself involved with right-wing governments throughout the world in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even has a part to play in the current conspiracization of American culture and American politics today. One thing we didn't even really get into in this interview was that it had and continues to have all the hallmarks of a cult. And I know that J.G. Michael's Parallax Views podcast has done some good work exposing the mistreatment of the Rouge organization members, especially the lower tiers. Marley Clements is a producer and writer known for Active Measures and QAnon, The Search for Q. Her company, Bunker Crew Media, put out the Kremlin file, which takes audiences on a riveting journey through the rise of Putin and the spread of authoritarianism across the globe and into the Trump White House. And we are going to touch on one aspect of the spread of authoritarianism across the globe, and that is the strange political cult of Lyndon LaRouche. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Marley Clements, and I am a documentary filmmaker and content producer. I produce several podcasts, uh, and I focus on 
political corruption, both domestically and abroad, um, true conspiracy, I would consider my genre. Um, so I wrote and produced the 2018 documentary Active Measures, and I am the host and co-host and co-director of uh, Q on the search for Q on Vice TV. So uh, my my world has been primarily focused on of Russian disinformation, and then that the evolution of that into you know sort of homegrown American disinformation and the impact that that had over the last four or five years in the Trump administration and then over the pandemic. Maybe you can help me kind of frame Russian disinformation or put it in the appropriate context or give it the appropriate weight because it's like on one hand it's a real thing that exists and has real impact but on the other hand it's become this like boogeyman that everybody can go to to like you know the problems with America is Russian disinformation every problem with America is Russian disinformation you know and there's clearly a line you know there's clearly something in between those two poles that's that's reasonable that makes sense yeah absolutely i think that you know that's sort of by design that sort of blurring of the lines right um i think that, that was you know that you know even russia pushes that in a big way around um you know oh well, this is all conspiracy we can just blame it on russia and not our our own problems uh and that's because what they have done uh in the Internet Research Agency and other, you know, the GRU sort of broadly has really done a very good job of not creating any sort of disinformation that has nothing to do with where we actually are. They really are, you know, taking kernels of truth within the U.S. and amplifying that in a way that really heightens our divisions as a country. Um, And so, you know, you see this, people primarily talk about it on the right, uh, and, you know, amplifying a lot of, you know, Donald Trump claims and things like that. But you also see it on the left with, uh, things like black lives matter within that movement. You see a lot of amplification of the chaos that sometimes can be associated with a a movement like that. And a lot, just the division, uh, in general, especially the division, um, in, in hopes of creating more chaos, but then, you know, also things like Standing Rock, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline protest that we saw in 2016. And and certainly now I'm seeing a lot of uh, Russian amplification of narratives around the Line 3 pipeline movement, Um, which isn't to say that the environmentalists protesting these things, um, you know, are not earnest in their protests. But it, it is an easy thing to amplify in order to make the right hate those protesters more and the left feel that they have, you know, certainly more to protest, right? They, they really push the memes of how terrible all of the, all of these things are and feeding into that. So, you know, I think that it's easier for a lot of people to say, sure, this is all Russian disinformation than it is to look at our own house. Right. And cleaning that up and like really figuring out, I think, how we relate to each other and, you know, have a conversation with our neighbor, whether or not we agree with them politically or not. Um, that, that is something, that's the work that we need to be doing as a country so that Russia can amplify us in a way that the disinformation cannot affect us in this way. Yeah. You know, that is such an important point. I've long been of the opinion that, you know, 
poverty and injustice and just this rotten legal system or governmental system that we have in America is what primes the pump for whatever Russia is trying to do. 100%. So, like, what is the successes that you think Russia's had? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that they were very, very effective in the 2016 election, especially. Um, You know, I spend a lot of time talking to people about disinformation in former Soviet bloc countries in Ukraine, Estonia, Georgia. Um, And it's interesting to see that they they have learned to deal with the disinformation. They have learned to see it sort of as an act of warfare and their, you know, their intelligence operations and their military know to pay attention to those things and sort of handle them before they get out of control. Um, and in the U S we certainly have not figured out how to sort of cut the head off of that snake. Um, and I a little bit more so now, I think that people do understand, you know, fake news on social media platforms, they're able to look at it and say, okay, well, there's no sourcing on that. Certainly, we are more media literate than we were in 2016. But when this first started happening in 2016, I think really nobody knew. And it seemed like, you know, all of a sudden, years and years and years of right wing attacks against the Clintons all culminated into one big meme. And the Russians were really able to push that in a way that U.S. operatives might not have on their own. I think that, you know, we up until that point believed there were still lines in the sand, right? There were things we weren't going to do. I mean, and even, you know, right wing sort of bad actors, I'd consider them at least that in the U.S., uh, you know, even even they thought they couldn't do that uh, because, you know, whether that was fear of, you know, prosecution or breaking some sort of law or something like that. It was just not really a part of our culture, the way that it was in elections in Eastern Europe and often in Latin America. Um, but, you know, many places around the world, they, they had sort of grown accustomed to that and we had not grown accustomed to these practices. And so 2016 was really the first time I think that we saw it as a country and we didn't know what to make of it. And so, because of that, we were such like, you know, newbies to this. And it was just a sort of like rookie attitude of like, okay, well, if, if it's in writing, then it must be true because we as Americans trust our press. We trust the things that we see because these have been vetted. And so I will give uh, Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin quite a bit of credit on 2016 and, and influencing the election towards Donald Trump. It's not like the United States hasn't employed disinformation or psychological warfare tactics overseas. What is the difference between like what the CIA did in Guatemala during the Cold War and what Russia is doing to us? Is it just a matter of scale or? Yeah, I mean, I think that we can see this, you know, with intelligence operations across the globe, certainly. Um, And I would say the difference is the difference between, you know, what was happening during the Cold War and now is the Internet. Right. I think that that's really um, we had not seen it taken advantage to the scale that the Russians were able to do so in the 2016 election, because, you know, there was certainly a lot of, you know, printed propaganda and, you know, newspapers and newsletters that are being handed out to different 
entity, you know, going door to door, putting them under under people's doors and holding town hall meetings and spreading disinformation, things like that. That that was certainly something that I think, you know, many um, global powers have, have utilized, their intelligence communities have utilized in order to swing elections in their favor. But we hadn't seen it to, this, to the scale that the Russians were able to do in 2016 because we hadn't had that option before. And people are able to sort of see a newsletter under their door and be like, oh, this is interesting. Maybe this is true and talk to a friend about it. And maybe they're sort of slowly muddy the waters because they're like, oh, well, that sounds crazy, but that maybe that's true, you know. Um, but being able to directly share it with everyone in our network and then see the acceptance of it and live in a world where by the time you see a meme or you see a article that is you know not based in fact it's got you know 6700,000 likes whatever on it that is you know i think pretty damning because we we feel as though well this has already been fact checked this has already been accepted by the community that i trust um, and I don't, I just don't think that we were really able to do that before. So I think there is a, a big difference between what we were doing in the eighties and what, what I mean, what all intelligence communities were doing in the eighties versus what's actually happening now. Um, I think it's a lot more damning. Yeah. And you know, the internet and Facebook, social media is just, it's much more organic. It's like, if you're like looking into COINTELPRO and like these mailers that the FBI would send to the Black Panthers to some people, I'm sure they were shocking and really useful disinformation, but to a lot of other people, it's just laughable and weird. And it's just, you know, I got this anonymous letter in the mail. It's much different to have an idea go from person to person with the immediacy of the internet. And then it's also, there's also kind of an organic process of like, it's not all state actors. It might start with state actors, but then individuals pick it up, you know, activists, people refine it to make it maybe a little make a little more sense to them or to be a little more appealing and then by the time you you're getting this like inundation of say anti-vaxxer memes and information it's like it's gone through this process where it's you know combine that with the immediacy of the internet and like you said the seeming legitimacy of things from the internet yeah, it feels like it's been vetted. And maybe, you know, of those 67,000 likes on it, you know, let's say, I, I don't know, 50,000 of them are actual organic American people opening their Facebooks and seeing this and liking it or sharing it, right? But maybe the first 10, 17, whatever, those were sort of, you know, Russian bots that are amplifying this. So it made it easy for people to click on and go to because there was enough of a base there where they could, they, they felt good about it. And then the rest of it is all us, right? They didn't have to do much to get it to that point, to make it to something that it seemed like vetted content. So we've had, you know, setting aside the Russians for the moment, we've had our own kind of homegrown disinformation networks in the United States for, absolutely. you know, I think the far right is, that's one of their great innovations is the you know the um the private disinformation network i hope it's not too far of a stretch to try to like pivot this conversation to lyndon larouche i got on good authority that you were the lyndon larouche person yeah certainly um i mean i'm certain there are certainly people who have a uh, far more expertise in lyndon larouche and his cult than than me but i i did find a um 
for some reason, it really resonated with me and something that I'm very interested in. But um, unfortunately, that also did start with Putin. That was uh, <laughs> that was uh, for me, for at least for me, um, it was. I came across him as sort of a footnote in the Steele dossier in 2017, and um, they were referencing a dinner that was held in Moscow that uh, is now a very famous dinner, infamous dinner, uh, where uh, Michael Flynn sat at the same table as Vladimir Putin and the Green Party candidate Jill Stein, as well as several other generals from that region and, and you know, sort of heads of Russian state media at this table. And uh, unclear whether or not Lyndon was actually at that dinner or not, but he was listed as somebody who sort of a radical uh, American disinformation operative who the Kremlin had co-opted at that point. And I felt very comfortable with sort of everything that I was reading at, during that phase in my research. And I was like, wait, who? Who's Lyndon LaRouche? You know, and it was, it was just really weirded me out that he was listed amongst people who I, I knew quite a bit about. And so I was like, well, I've really got to look into this. And so I did. And, um, he was just a fascinating figure to me because I do think that like, you know, back to our conversation a moment ago about what is the difference between what was happening in the eighties and Intel operations, disinformation operations, and what's happening now and the effectiveness of them. He sort of lived in that former world of not much is he, he couldn't really make that big of a splash, really. He, I mean, his his operation really it couldn't reach that far. There was only so far that he could have gone before. Um, and but he really was sort of the OG on all of this. And he's a he's a figure who rose out of I mean, to me, I see him as, yes, a political cult leader, but one of the most fascinating political figures in the 20th century, certainly. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, let's let's kind of roll back the clock a little bit. Why don't you just give us your, you know, brief intro into Lyndon LaRouche? So, Lyndon LaRouche is a sort of political cult leader, I would say, in the United States. He's uh, a fascinating figure, and... In many ways, I see him as the sort of precursor to you know, Trumpian politics and what we're experiencing now as a country. Um, he's a really interesting guy. He was raised a Quaker in Massachusetts. And unfortunately, from what I understand, he had a highly abusive father. Uh, he was bullied terribly at school, but his parents insisted on pacifism, right? And this was something that was deeply rooted in his family. And so he couldn't really fight back. He had no recourse for what he was experiencing in terms of violence in his life. So he's being bullied terribly at school, but he's forced to take these beatings. His dad's, you know, hitting his mom, him, and he, he can't fight back. He has to accept this peacefully. Um, and I think that that really just didn't sit well with him. I don't think it would sit well with anyone to his defense. Uh, and he felt the world was sort of full of contradictions, um, painful ones at that right? And it's a lot of the driving force for the anger that we see in his in the future for him. Uh, and then World War II happens and he's able to stay out of combat by leaning on his Quaker upbringing and becoming a conscientious, conscientious objector. Uh, but he still served as an army medic in Bombay. And so he's there. I believe 49 he arrives or 40, 48, 49. And this at this period, um, 
he, as you know, many young Americans are becomes really engrossed in the work of Lenin. He's really interested in our revolution. He's reading these works and he's seeing, you know, this, this work out in Soviet Union. And he's very, he's interested in that and the way that Lenin was able to, uh, you know, really get an entire group of people to rise up and change the system. And so he's reading this at night in his tent a lot. And then, you know, he's walking around in the streets in Bombay during the day. And, um, I think with India having just gained their independence, this nationalism is really, it's peak nationalism for them. They feel like they've really won and they're very happy. And I believe he began to see everything as the work of the queen, everything bad in the world, I would say, as the work of the queen and the royal family, because that would have been popular rhetoric in the streets of Bombay in 49, you know. Um, And so... He returns to the U.S. after this, and he, like you know, many young men in that era, try, gets a job, very normal. Um, I believe he was uh, selling shoes. I, I should I should fact check that, but I believe he was a uh, working for some sort of shoe company. And he's not really rising up, and he's sort of stuck in this bureaucratic moment of you know he can't he can't get along with the bosses, and he's got this you know he's just the working stiff, and he can't he can't get ahead. He's got a wife and a small son at this point, and he can't really provide for him. And he's like, this isn't it. This is not what I was going for, right? And so he starts finding himself go downtown after work more. And he's in New York, and he's – this is a you know, mid-60s now, and he's really – becomes fascinated with the culture in the West Village, in Greenwich Village, and really – this moment of organizing and this socialist workers party and seeing that, you know, young socialist, um, in the schools, uh, in NYU and other schools, they're really organizing. They're doing well. They're bringing, you know, all sorts of people together. This is the moment of the civil rights movement. Everything is really trending towards, you know, revolution. And he's like, that's where I need to be. And he meets a young woman who, has an apartment in Greenwich Village, allows him into her home, and they fall in love. He leaves his family, and he starts sort of holding court in her apartment in Greenwich Village every night and bringing in the more radical of the of the Socialist Workers Party. He's, you know, attending their meetings nightly, but he's, he's bringing back the really tr- true soldiers of this cause. He's, he sees it to the apartment at night, and he's becomes sort of this, um, you know, who's got guy who's holding court in Greenwich Village at this point. And he's not getting a huge amount of traction, but he's getting enough. It, it feels good to him. Um, and so I think that that was that initial sort of shot of was sort of a shot of adrenaline for him to like, I can lead this movement. They must see me as their leader. And so you know, there's sort of some infighting within the socialist groups. And he's like, these guys are clowns. I can do better than this. You know, he's a true, true narcissist. Uh, and so he sort of branches off. And at that point, he creates what he calls the American Labor Party. And this is where things get really weird, right? It's sort of normal upbringing. And then things get really out of control there because he has developed this small group of you know disciples around him and some of them are acting in a way that he sees you know as a threat to him they're saying okay well we have questions we have thoughts what about this what do we think about this and he's like shut up 
this is my this is my stage, right? Like you can sit down, like you're supposed to just listen to me and take my word out, you know. Uh, and so things get very strange with him and his the woman that he has moved in with uh, ends up leaving him for one of a one of his other followers. And at this point, we see a real psychological shift with him where he becomes hyper paranoid that everyone's working against him. And he uh, starts um, what he calls deprogramming. This is sort of parts of what he considers Operation Mop Up. This is his period for him where he thinks that everybody around him has been turned against him or will be turned against him and that he must be this great figure in the world and therefore the CIA and the queen must be after him because he's a real threat to their institutions. Right. Right. Um, like what year was this roughly? I would say, uh, like, uh, late sixties, early seventies. Right. And was he ever part of the kind of like the larger left or was he always just kind of like obscure figure in his corner of, Greenwich Village. You know, I think that he 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 meant he set out to meaning to be part of the larger left, but it was clear to him that that was not a place that he could absolutely control. Uh, and uh, I remember in one of the books I've read about him, there's several really good books about him: uh, Dennis King, Chip Burlett, several authors who have really dedicated their lives to him and, and have been really meaningful to me, certainly. Um, and I'm sure your listeners might really enjoy some of their work. Uh, but I remember one anecdote about him playing a, a board game or something with one of the small child, one of his girlfriend's small children. And he, uh, the kid makes a move. I think he's about four years old. The kid makes a move that puts him ahead of Lyndon in the game. Right. And, to watch him freak out on this kid and throw the board, right? <laughs> he spanks him, puts him to bed, right? Is uh, I think that was um, that's sort of very indicative to me in my head of how he operated within the larger left, right? Right, right. <laughs> not an appropriate reaction. Yeah, I mean, there was like there seemed to be people who saw him coming a mile away and knew to avoid him, and then other people who for whatever reason, didn't pick up on that. and But this Operation Mop-Up, was that when he was consolidating and kind of driving away the people who wouldn't show loyalty to him? Yeah, this is he's definitely, he's left. He's started his own party, American Labor Party. Um, and he is, uh, yeah, he's definitely out on his own there. And the people around him, he believes to be, uh, either disloyal or on the verge of being disloyal and that that must be quelled. And so um, one of the things he studied as a young man was psychology and he really leaned in on this psychology and he started holding groups where he's doing, you know, he's forcing people to tell, you know, their deepest secrets about, you know, their relationship to, sex or religion, anything. Right. And, and really forcing people to put everything out there and know everything about each other. And, um, and then he picks people sort of that he thinks might be disloyal. He sees people who might stray and therefore he, uh, he singles these people out and his, his, at first it's him. And then he trains his followers to do this. So these deprogramming rituals, um, and they're essentially torture, right? 
And so he starts, you know, torturing people to eventually, you know, tell him that they were taken by the CIA, that the CIA is, uh, has co-opted them and they've been asked to infiltrate. And I don't know of any cases where that was actually the truth, but he does get a lot of them to say that. Right. And then they feel that they're, they're broken. And, uh, and so he's able to bring them back in at that point. And, and it really, they're just so brainwashed and so broken and have been tortured for so long. They've been made to stay awake, uh, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally tortured by these people around them that, that they submit sort of entirely. Right. And so, you know, we see this with, with cults often, this is not an unusual thing for cults, especially during this, this era. Uh, but things just really start to get out of control. And he is at one point they sort of get caught for this because a young woman is one of his followers is kidnapped, brought into a, an apartment in Harlem and tortured for several days. And after several days, she's able to get a paper airplane out the window that says, help, I'm being help. I, I need help. I'm being tortured. And she puts her address on it. And a, a woman walking back from the butcher and her young son find this in the snow in Harlem. And they, you know, call the cops, the cops break this up. She's freed. And, uh, while they're doing it at his will, he gets away with it. A couple of them do a little bit of jail time, but, um, he's kind of like, all right, well, I'm kind of done with that anyway. I'm moving on to bigger things. I've, I've learned how to control people entirely. So I'm going to take my rightful place here and I'm going to run for president. And he runs as a Democrat in 1976. And this is his first run of eight that he will make over the course of his lifetime. He ran for president eight times. Um, and so that election, it doesn't really go well. He doesn't get, I mean, he gets on the ballot in very few states and he doesn't, he's not able to raise much money, not merely be able to cause much of a stir. Um, and, you know, kind of a joke, right? You know, it's around this time, but it's a little bit later during the, these final years of the seventies after his first run, he, he understands that he's able to use running for office as a way to raise money um, and a way to sort of propel his grift, right? And so through that, he sees, you know, I've got, I've got more followers than ever and I can start reaching out to people in a real way. And he's got not a huge amount of followers, but he has followers all around the world. Um, a big group in England. There's a lot in Germany. There's many Swedish followers. And from them, he's able to start obtaining uh, what he would consider sort of intelligence from other intelligence, from foreign intelligence agencies. And like, what was the impetus to, he developed like a full on intelligence network? Like, how did he end up going from union politics to, you know, a, his own little CIA? Well, I think that he believed in turning and, and, he believed that with the queen's control of MI6 and the CIA's control over the U S he saw them as the most powerful figures and he wanted to be that himself. And so he thought, you know, by creating an intelligence network, he would, he would be able to rival their power and therefore rise in that power. And so, um, it's after his first presidential run that he pulls together all of these sort of 
you know, faux intelligence operatives that he's developed under his uh, tutelage. And he creates a newsletter called the Executive Intelligence Review, uh, EIR. And uh, that really takes off um, in a pretty big way for him, which is great. So that's about 1977, I believe, was that was founded. And um, he's able to reach so many more households. And we talked about earlier the CIA, FBI, others sending out you know, newsletters to people's houses about things. He really cashes in on that movement, right? He's like, we're sending this everywhere. Um, and, and from that, you know, people are writing back and, you know, it's the eighties, things are really continuing along. And I think I, I saw somewhere that he was an annual subscription to the executive intelligence review in 81 was $400, which is a lot of money, right? Like I, I subscribed things. I support independent journalism and not so independent journalism probably, but, um, I really, uh, $400 a year is a ton of money, especially in the early eighties. And so he's, he sees this as this like great way to make money. And then who can afford $400? It's Senate offices, lawyers, you know, you know, you know, people in, um, corporate, in corporations who want the latest intelligence, not realizing that, you know, they're getting conspiracy theories about the Queen of England being a drug runner or whatever. Right. And he's billing it as is that as legitimate intelligence. And he's able to do so by saying I was a candidate for the United States presidency. Right. And I was, I was a Democratic candidate for the United States presidency. And so that sounds legit. Um, and maybe people don't remember who all was in the primary, but that seems like he must be a senator. He must be somebody of import. Right. Yeah. Per, you know, and I think a lot of it is in like a lot of other countries. They don't realize that anybody who is registered as a Democrat can be a Democratic candidate. Yeah. And I mean, you said other countries. I don't know that necessarily everybody in this country in the U.S. Right. 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 But um, yeah. So so 80 is an interesting turning point for him, because while he's been this, he's seen himself as this major figure on the left, though he hasn't really been. But he he's he bills himself as such uh, at a when he's running for president in 80, he is they hold a candidates uh, debate. They hold a candidate's debate in New Hampshire, and he is able to share the stage with Ronald Reagan. And so in doing this debate with him, he, you know, he gets to talk to some of the people backstage and he makes friends with a young Reagan staffer named Roger Stone. And from that point forward, we see sort of a, a very jarring shift to the far right. Um and you, his language over the next, I'd say, eight years really shifts towards this Cold Warrior, you know, anti-Soviet, pro-Reagan, um, but like the neo-fascist version of that, right? Uh, it is, uh, he's certainly taking it very far and he is uh, wildly anti-Semitic and anti um, he's homophobic, he's racist, and he's going all in on that. Uh, he's now added others to his list of people that he's attacking, like the Queen of England. Um, Henry Kissinger was a really, really top person. And uh, by the way, I'm not a huge Henry Kissinger fan myself, but uh, it's it's not because he's Jewish for me. <laughs> um, and that was, that was a big, uh, big problem for Lyndon. Um, and so... 
you know, you see this, his language change, him get more radical, more extreme, his, his followers continuing to get more extreme. They're starting more schemes to, uh, fool the media and fool, uh, their fool, everybody to get more followers. They're starting to, you know, really grift off of old women who are afraid of Soviets, uh, really cashing in on that, that sentiment. Um, and, and it's just continuing to get more and more extreme. And so, uh, there is a case opened on him and, um, in the 86, uh, the Massachusetts attorney general busts in and he is charged with mail fraud and, um, these things for essentially, I mean, sending out fake campaign letters for Ronald Reagan and really, really pushing that without this, the Soviets are going to take over um, and then just keeping that money for himself. Right. He's not giving any of this money to Reagan. OK, so he's like pseudo campaigning for Reagan and collecting donations and keeping the donations. Is that what? Yeah, it's a it's a lot of that. Um, and uh, as, as well as other sort of just weird mail fraudy type grifts. Uh, but. He's really he's he sees he really captures the moment with this, uh, you know, fear mongering about the Soviets and such uh, and is able to capitalize on that and and raise a lot of money off of it. And so that's that's part of um, what he ended up going down for. But he is, uh, you know, the executive intelligence review is flourishing. He's now made friends with several right wing figures who are in Reagan world. He's continued his relationship with Roger Stone and he is able to, by some accounts, actually sort of operate, um, for Ronald Reagan. Uh, he's, he's, we're not, it's pretty unclear on this, but there have been several people from the Reagan administration who have been like, yeah, we, we worked with that guy, kind of. Um, yeah, there, there's. I remember coverage in The New Republic, and I think Dennis King goes into it in his book, where he speaks to people like, um, now I'm going to lose the name, but, um, you know, people with, like, the NSC that, you know, are proud of the fact that they are, you know, very outspoken of the fact that they attended meetings with LaRouche and, you know, got information from the executive intelligence review. Um, you know, I've, sp I've spoken to, you know, a few journalists from that era who are like, yeah, we got, you know, LaRouche people were always calling us with scoops. And like, if they're good journalists, they say, you know, this was crazy stuff, but every once in a while we had to look into it because there's, you know, their sources could be really good. You know, it's like, there's always this lens of, you know, fascistic propaganda on top of everything so you couldn't take anything at face value but um you know so it's it's you know so eir and by extension lyndon larousse was a force in national politics and in republican politics at least in the reagan and bush eras yeah no he absolutely was and he was able to really i mean because some people were listening to him and because he was getting meeting with foreign foreign leaders uh, with because of his status as a Democratic candidate, uh, he was able to, you know, get some really good scoops. And we began this conversation by talking about disinformation and that some of the things that the Russians have been able to do are 
you know, take the kernels of truth within the U.S. and amplify those. And they were really able to do this here. And sometimes they were able to get really good scoops. So you kind of couldn't ignore him. Um, and, you know, he claims that he was a big part of the uh, new the START treaty, rather, uh, and getting a lot done behind the scenes with the Russians for the Reagan administration. I don't know if that is true or not, but uh, he's going around saying it and people people are going to believe it, you know. And so um, I think a lot of people did take things from him and they, uh, you know, they're prolific publishers and their their newsletter and EIR is still online. All, they have several newsletters and several think tanks and just institutions around them now. But they uh, all those publications are still online today and they are able to, you know, I every now and then I'm doing research on something else and come across something in EIR from the late 80s that is like, you yeah, know, that's true. And at the time, maybe that sounded crazy, but it's true now. Um, and then around it, it, you know, it's it's these, you know, few sentences of like, that's true. And then it's just padded with crazy around it. So you have to be able to like parse through those things. And, you know, we see that with their disinformation now, right? It's like, maybe there's like, one study that looked at something and it was a little weird around this one thing. Um, but they take that one study and they ignore all of the other studies that have been done and really just focus on that one concern that they had in the first round or something. I mean, you see this with the anti-vaxxers all the time. Right. And, and so Lyndon really perfected that technique in EIR. Um, and just had this group of people who were, I mean, his offices were, in New York and at his uh, compound that he established, I believe in 84 in Loudoun, Virginia, he buys this huge house, this big property, and he moves all of his followers there ostensibly for security reasons. He needs to have people around him. And it's this very armed, you know, the whole property is lined with armed guards and it's highly wired and there's, you know, cameras everywhere. And, uh, his paranoia is really, you know, it's, it's creeping up there. And so he is, uh, from there and from his offices in New York, um, and in Oakland where his other offices really are, he's able to, he's got groups of people who are just constantly manning the phone lines and half of them are calling and selling subscriptions to one of their newsletters and half of them are calling just journalists. And it's almost like these, these Russian crank callers that we have now, right? Where they've like made it through to, you know, cabinet offices and things and talked to people and made up, made up countries and been like, are you, are you concerned about this? Do you know about the situation in Rimea, you know, like, and people are like, Oh, like scared to say otherwise, you know? And so they're calling. So, I mean, the LaRouche's really figured that out early and they're calling newspapers constantly with scoops. And as you said, uh, you know, journalists kind of have to look into them a little bit. And so they're taking up the time there for people. And then they're just calling congressional offices. They're calling the White House over and over and over again. And about, you know, a small percentage of the time, they actually make it through and their meetings are accepted and people are running stories on these things. And, and so it's a successful strategy. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's really what he's up to in the 80s until until he is investigated. Um, and one of the things that happens during this investigation is the people who ran the investigation were a young prosecutor by the name of Bob Mueller and Bill Weld. Uh, so and um, 
as we know, he was the uh, libertarian candidate for president in 2016. Um, and so Bill and Bob are, uh, you know, closing in on him and things are getting crazier and crazier in, in the compound. And eventually they do, uh, bust in and he's charged with mail fraud and, uh, several other frauds. And he is, um, he's, he's sent to prison for, he was sentenced, I believe for 16 years and he only serves five of those years. Uh, but he does, he goes to prison and he is, um, he's, he runs for president from prison and he's able to really push this idea that he is being politically persecuted, right? Uh, in the same way that we see Donald Trump now, right? The only reason that these investigations are happening into me is because they want to stop me from becoming president because I'm going to work for the people, right? So Lyndon really nailed that. And he was able to really bring in some real people around him at that point. Uh, we see uh, various countries, um, their embassies writing letters in support to the U.S. government and saying, you know, you really shouldn't be prosecuting people who are you know, just trying to shake up the system. You've, you've taken this guy in. You've got to let him out. We see um, a sad moment for me when I found the letter that Rosa Parks wrote in his favor. He's really able to get a lot of the former big civil rights advocates around him um, because they are a group of people who have been politically persecuted, right? And they have had to, you know, they've seen the FBI close in on them and target them in a way that is unfair and um, it's profiling and just straight racist. And, and so they, they understand that this does happen. And so they are able to sort of rally around him. Um, and he gets this great group of support. His, his wife, Helga, who is a character in her own right, a uh, young German woman is, uh, she starts a think tank that is solely focused on getting him out called the Fidelio Institute. And what that is based on is, uh, is Beethoven's only opera he wrote. And it is about a, a political prisoner whose wife works on the outside for him and her efforts get him out. And so Helga, his wife, sees herself as this figure and she's, her star begins to rise during this period. And eventually he is let out within five years and uh, he comes out and we see sort of another shift again in his um, you know, political chameleonism that we've seen over the years. He's gone from far left to far right to now just staunchly pro Russia. And, uh, and just that sort of the, the final years of his political career are really acting on, you know, behalf of the Kremlin. <laughs> um, and so that's, it's an interesting arc that he has certainly. Yeah. You know, um, and I'm wondering like, if we could look back to the eighties real quick, if you have any insight or tips, I'm looking into, you know, I've seen hints of like, you know, you know, the executive intelligence review. So the LaRouche network is really embraced by like countries in South America. And, um, and like, I know at one point the LaRouche, um, organization was in Spain and to like, curry favor with like Franco who was still around at the time was like giving them intelligence on 
the ETA, the Basque separatists. So like LaRouche was definitely swimming in this network in a kind of more concrete manner than just like selling them magazines. You know, there is this sort of strained relationship that he had with much of, you know, Reagan Republicans and, and certainly they were very active in Franco's network. Right. And so, you know, you could see that if you were Roger Stone or even, you know, higher than that as a, you know, member of Reagan's inner circle. Right. Um, and you needed somebody to be sort of your doing your work, but as a proxy, uh, there is no better person to choose than Lyndon LaRouche because he will sign up. He will be eager. He will bring his best and he will be there all day. And he likes to think of himself as an intelligence operative. So he sort of will keep it quiet a little bit. Um, and so it would make sense that he was doing that with them. You know, you see there were a lot of this sort of original right wing network, uh, certainly the Bozells, the founders of the Media Research Center, and others within this this group of um, you know Reagan Republicans, uh, sort of the Buckley Republicans, I would say actually that sort of Buckley network was uh, was very involved in all of these you know strident Catholic fascist movements that were happening at that period and literal nazis literal nazis right yeah the actual nazis um and you know with larouche you know lacking scruples needing to curry political favor and a hyper racist and and anti-semite himself i mean who better to go to right he had people everywhere he could sort of fly under the radar and if he did say something, you know what you could say is that guy's fucking crazy. Sorry, can I say that? <laughs> okay. Um, and and therefore, like, we're going to, you know, not pay attention to anything he says. Like, he's the easiest fall guy ever. Um, right. Like, total plausibly, plausible deniability there. Right. What? That dude? No way. So what was, best we can surmise, what was Roger Stone's relationship to... LaRouche and what is the kind of I mean LaRouche died in 2019 he did it was a very sad day for me <laughs> you, you'll never get to interview him now I was crushed honestly yeah. I'd been working for years on that it oh, sucks um, I must imagine Zelda was it Zelda Hep LaRouche is that her name it's Helda, Helda, Helga Zep LaRouche um, so it's Helga keeping the torch lit is she is oh, the, she torching she yeah. out there with the torch in the street she uh-huh. riding for a man you know um but she's uh yes she's absolutely keeping things going it's a, certainly all a little bit more under wraps now um i think without his the character that he was this right. charismatic um mm-hmm. controlling narcissist put himself the out there of it. yeah, yeah. Uh, really putting it all out there uh and and very happy to be in front of any camera that was near him. Um, he, uh, I think Helga is certainly more, um, certainly camera shy, but she is, she's quite an operator. Uh, you know, I, I shouldn't speak to things that are just rumor, but I have heard from people that she, uh, she was actually sort of raised as like Stasi youth, right? Um, uh, she's grew up in Dresden and she was an informant and, and young operator for the Stasi. I, 
I don't know that most most Stasi records were burned at the fall of the Berlin Wall. I don't think anyone's going to ever really know that, but tell you what she's someone who certainly got acts like it right uh she's a natural at least she is she's a she i mean if she wasn't she really missed a bet let's say that um but so uh she is uh yeah she's sort of militant for him still and she's um even in his death you know organizing protests around clearing his name and making sure that people are you know speak highly of him in death and uh, and she's she's carrying on his work both domestically and abroad. Um, as I understand it, they're currently working on uh, a sort of infrastructure. Uh, it's not an infrastructure. It's certainly not attached to this infrastructure bill, but it is uh, sort of an infrastructure bank that is uh, really set on, I guess, bankrupting bankrupting the federal reserve which is one of his big things uh and so they're really they're really into that and switching to the fed um and so they are you know they're working on that they're working on she claims to be working very closely with the chinese government on the silk road uh initiative um and be an economic advisor to various countries i don't know that she is i think the wind is a bit out of their sails but uh, as far you know, they they do still have the compound, and she seems to still be running things, and some um, certainly still going on out there. There's, I mean, they're certainly still available if somebody wants a weird rumor planted or exactly, you know, get dirt on somebody. As best you understand it, what was the relationship, or what is the relationship between Roger Stone and the Larouche organization? There are several clips of Roger talking about Lyndon that you could, I'm sure, play for your audience. But um, they have been sort of on the DL about that. I do know that the morning after the 2016 election, after Donald Trump's been elected, you know, Roger, as obviously one of his closest confidants and dearest friends, uh, he's got a podcast and his first guest the morning after the election is Lyndon LaRouche, right? Um, He is uh, he is. That that's a choice. That is a choice. If your best friend has just been elected president, I feel like you could have every anybody. But sure enough, he has Lyndon, um, and so you know they continued to sort of, uh, I would say, like, I mean, kind of shill for each other, but really just um, always speak highly of each other. Always, you know, show that you know, sort of in endorse each other to each other's communities, right? So Roger Stone's community and those who follow him are going to be, you know, pretty significantly different than those who follow LaRouche and vice versa. But they're able to give each other credibility in both of those, you know, conspiratorial circles. Um, And I think that, you know, we see that as sort of modern day horseshoe theory playing out. He, Lyndon believes himself until his death to be this, you know, far left you know, creature of the far left. I don't, I, you know, looking at his policies, I don't think see anything far left about him, but that's, that's a different thing. But he, uh, is, um, he, he pushes that and Roger with his you know, sort of far right creatures, he is able to, they're, you know, really build each other up. Lyndon, uh, many times over the last decade certainly has been a guest on Alex Jones show and, always sort of striking to me that the beginning of those when he does the introductions he's like you know but for Lyndon, where would i be sort of thing you know he uh he loves that guy um and so yeah you sort of see him rising up as as like the og conspiracist that 
in the age of conspiratorial politics that we're living through now, people can point to is like, this isn't a new theory. We can go to this guy who's been covering this since the seventies, you know, and, and sure enough, Lyndon's on and he's happy to talk about it. You know, right. I'd see him, I see him as sort of the godfather of the politics of conspiracy, right? He is the sort of, uh, you can't look at the dark side of the 20th century without looking at Lyndon LaRouche because he personifies that. He is sort of the id of the American conspiracist, right? Um, and and so all of these people who have come after him, uh, they do. They follow his model. And we see it in not only in the things that they're pushing, but we see it in the way that they grift and the way that they you know, take advantage of people um, and, uh, and, and create these cult-like followings. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, if I think Alex Jones is right, but for Lyndon LaRouche, do we, does, is there an Alex Jones, right? He is, he is the person who came before all of these and lit the path for them. Uh, and that's really where my interest is in him and where I've, where I found myself sort of semi obsessed with, uh, his legacy is that, you know, he didn't have the internet. He couldn't put this out, but he was able to do it well enough with just some newsletters and a group full of phone, a room full of phone bankers and some slaves and a couple slaves, you know. So he's able to do that well enough that it presented itself as a viable option for people who may or may not run for president. From time to time, we invite people with different points of view to express their opinions. With us to discuss the 1988 presidential campaign is political nutcase Lyndon LaRouche. Hi, Lyndon. The 1988 presidential campaign has come down ultimately to the choice between two evils. On the one hand, the wicked George Bush, on the other, the demented Michael Dukakis. Bush, a former member of the Satanic Trilateral Commission, is a known co-conspirator of the homosexual child molester Henry Kissinger. <laughs> However, it is the severely deranged Dukakis who poses the greatest threat to our very survival. Not since 1972, when the psychotic Thomas Eagleton was chosen as running mate by the fiendish George Bush, uh, George McGovern, has our nation been so at risk. <laughs> the maniacal Dukakis, in collusion with the depraved Lloyd Benson and the International Monetary Fund, seek a policy of systematic genocide against the people of the third world. A policy that could only have been hatched in the mind of the most diabolical fiend of the 20th century, Walter Mondale. And now, the madman Dukakis, along with his confederates, the murderous John Glenn, the sinister Bill Bradley, and the black Mephistopheles Jesse Jackson, have set about to perpetrate the greatest lie of them all, that I am insane. Well, well, thank you, Lyndon. We here at Weekend Update always enjoy hearing a different point of view. I doubt that. Being that NBC has plotted against me for years and that General Electric is one of the world's largest launderers, 
of drug money. All right, then. Uh, thank you for sharing your opinions, and good luck. I'll get you for that.